Welcome, everybody, to the Tennis Worthy Podcast presented by the International Tennis Hall of Fame. I'm Brett Haber, and this week we are excited to talk with Australian tennis legend and Hall of Famer John Newcomb. From a young age, I would always listen to someone who knew what they were talking about and take something away from that. It's changing ends, and my mother ne never said anything on the court, but she, she kind of hissed at me uh, as I changed ends. She said, why don't you start playing tennis and stop feeling sorry for yourself? We just meshed well together. We liked each other. You know, if I was in a war, he'd be one guy that I wouldn't mind being in a foxhole with. The one rule we had was if we went out and had a big night, we had to train twice as hard the next day. We got them all together and we said, guys, right now, you all think it's good if you get to a quarterfinal of a Grand Slam. We're going to come out winning Grand Slam tennis and we're going to become the best team in the world. During his illustrious career, Nuke captured seven major singles titles, event record 17 doubles majors, and an impressive five Davis Cup crowns for his native Australia. Interestingly enough, Nuke credits his ability to study himself as a key reason for his success on court. In an era before sports psychology became the norm, John was a pioneer and even wrote a book on the subject. Nuke also discusses his intricate practice routine at an early age, the camaraderie that comes with being an Aussie on tour, and how he balanced a family while traveling the globe to compete. Time now to dive in with tennis-worthy host Chris Bowers and John Newcomb. Chris, take it away. John Newcomb, what do you think it is that makes you a Hall of Famer? Well, the first thing, Chris, is that you have to have the wins on the board. You know, you have to win. Uh, you have to win some Grand Slams, whether it be in singles or doubles. And uh, I guess you have to have upheld the integrity of the game. I mean, the main thing is having won you know, a number of matches. Where did your champion's instinct come from? Was there anything in your childhood or your background that suggested that you knew how to win? No, I've, I've got a, a distant uh, cousin, uh, Warren Barsley, who was uh, way back, was uh, uh, one of Australia's top cricketers. And uh, I just was always very competitive, still am competitive, love competing, prefer to win, but uh, I'm OK with losing and um, admitting that the other person was better on the day. So I, I guess you have to be able to, to deal with both things. And the, it says it uh, when you walk onto the centre court at Wimbledon, the quote two lines from uh, Kipling's poem, if, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same. And the first time I saw that when I went to Wimbledon, when I'd just turned 17, that became sort of my life motto. A lot of kids who end up as tennis champions play lots of sports at the age of eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. You were no exception. What were you good at apart from tennis? Uh, I was pretty good at cricket. I stopped playing the other sports when I was 12. I, I wasn't able to do all the tennis that I was doing and do the other sports and, and do my studies. So my parents said, you know, you've got to make a decision. Either you, if you want to be serious about tennis, you can only do that. But if you want to play the other sports, go ahead. But I was uh, captain of my under-12 under uh, cricket team and I opened the bowling and the batting 
and uh, I was in the first 15 rugby. You know, loved doing the athletics uh, competitions, and I enjoyed all those sports. But I had a dream from when I was 10 years of age to play at Wimbledon and play Davis Cup for Australia, and that was uh, more important than playing the other sports. So when you were in your tennis squads with youngsters who probably hit the same sort of forehands and backhands as you, why were you winning matches more than they were? Yeah, that's a very good question because I, I came up with a... There was probably about eight of us and, and from the time I started playing in tournaments at uh, 10, 11 years of age that were all about the same level. And they all you know, were getting coached and they all had good games. But I always managed to win. I won every age championship that we came through. I, I, I can't say what they were doing. I know what I was doing that... Um, from 10 years of age, when I, was, I started getting private lessons, uh, I, I would get only a half-hour private lesson a week. That was it, not every day. But I'd come home from school, and the first thing I'd do, I'd, I'd have a cup of tea with my mother, and then um, I'd go into the backyard, and I'd uh, practice my service toss for about 10 minutes so that I could land it in the same spot 10 out of 10 times. And then I'd practice serving... Uh, Against the brick wall in the back of our house, I had targets I'd drawn up at net height right along the brick wall and I'd measure off the distance from the, the brick wall uh, on the grass and uh, where the back line would be and I'd practice serving at these targets and then I'd uh, do that for about 10 minutes and then I'd go up and uh, practice volleying against the brick wall. It's very hard to beat a brick wall when you're volleying. Do that for 10 minutes so... In, in about half an hour, I'd had a, a really heavy session of my own practice, but practicing specific things. And then I'd, I'd get on my bike and go up the local oval and uh, do whatever with my mates up there. But the first things first, uh, I got that uh, practice in that I wanted to do because I had a dream and I, you know, I wanted to fulfill it. But I wanted to do the other things as well. So even at the age of 10, you found the discipline within yourself to put that practice in before going off with your mates? Yes, and um, the uh, Slashinger Sporting Goods Company had uh, started to sponsor me with, with rackets, uh, free rackets, and they arranged a, a gym for me to go to, which I'd, I'd do one or two days a week after school. I'd go to this gym, and the person that was there had trained a, a number of players like, like Hoden Rosewell before me, and so we do um, not a lot of heavy weights, you know, a lot of stomach work and jumping exercises and things like that for a, an hour session, and uh, and Slashinger's paid for that. So uh, at an early age, I was into it, and I didn't mind because, uh, you know, I bought into it myself. Was there a bit of peer pressure? Did your mates sort of say, oh, come on, John, just come down and join us? Did you seem a bit nerdy to them? Uh, no, not at all. I had a lot of good mates at school and they were doing their thing and I was doing mine. I did get a lot of uh, a lot of heat from some of the uh, teachers at the school. I went to a private school and it was uh, an old traditional English type of thing. And So the heat you got was for putting the effort into sport rather than academic? Well, when I went, when I went to secondary school, I was 12 years of age and... Uh, I, from the school I came from, I had a average uh, scholastic report, but 
a glowing uh, sport report. I, and uh, so I just try, I tried out for the under-13A's cricket team and got selected in it. And, and then I found out we had to play uh, practice twice a week and the matches would be all day Saturday. So my parents said, well, you can't do that and, and you're tennis, so what do you want to do? They left it up to me and I said, well, I want to play tennis. So I had to let the school know that I was pulling out of the cricket team. And that didn't go well because that was a team sport. And uh, the headmaster then was a, you know, an old-fashioned... He was in his last two years and he gave me hell. And there was a, a number of the teachers were older teachers and they thought they had to teach this young, uh, young brat a lesson. And so they gave, put me through uh, a, a lot of uh, after-school detentions and things like that, but that only hardened my resolve. I was going to say, did that harden you up? Oh, yeah, and uh, I, I guess it built a, a healthy respect against people who were in authority that didn't know what they were talking about. Right, <laughs> OK. So how did you deal with Harry Hopman? You said you went to Wimbledon for the first time at 17. You were in the Davis Cup team at 17, and Hopman was the strictest of strict taskmasters. Well, there's a difference there because Hop knew what he was talking about. So he had your respect. Hop was tough but fair. He was a disciplinarian, um, but uh, he had the trust of the players that were, were under him. And you knew that what he was asking you to do was for your own benefit. It was only going to make you a better person. And he, he felt that uh, it, in order to have discipline on the court, you needed to have discipline off the court. I guess he, he felt that uh, sometimes I uh, enjoyed not having discipline off the court in a, in a social aspect. Was he right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But he was all over me, so and I didn't mind. So what did you most learn from Hopman? Uh, being in a, a team aspect, uh, I, I, don't, I wouldn't have rated, uh, you know, when I look back, Hopper's the greatest tennis coach ever, but he knew how to get a group of young men together and to prepare them for a given occasion uh, and have them produce their best. So you'd get together, you'd all be together in a squad, you know, maybe eight of us, and let's say it was Emerson and Laver. Everyone knew that they were going to play the singles, so everything was done to help them prepare. If you had to serve to them so they could practice their return for half an hour, you did it, whatever it was. If, if Hop said, uh, Emma's going for a run, go with him, uh, which he asked me to do a couple of occasions. That was quite difficult because Emma was a fitness fanatic and although I was pretty fit, he was tough. All but one of Hopman's 20 years as Australian Davis Cup captain were during the split amateur and professional era, which meant that he always had a heavy turnover of young men coming into the squad. Do you think it actually helped his authority that he never had any late 20s, early 30s players. And actually, it's interesting that he stopped about a year after Open Tennis came in. Yeah. Well, I think he, he saw Open... I, I think Hop saw Open Tennis come in and he, he realised exactly what you're saying. It's a, it's a new world here. He won't have the same authority. And, and also, he was looking ahead to get something for himself because he wasn't making a lot of money doing what he was doing in uh, amateur tennis so he uh, had the opportunity to go to America and and get into some things over there and so that probably uh, helped his uh, you know his pay packet quite considerably.
One of the features of your early years was that you developed your own quite detailed post-match analysis, in particular when you lost a match. Where did that come from? From a young age, I would always listen to someone who knew what they were talking about and take something away from that. And I was told when I was uh, 12 years of age that you always learn something when you lose a match. You don't learn that much when you win a match. And so how you learn from when you lost a match is to analyse yourself honestly what went on in the match and why you lost it. And so it could be, well, if I hadn't served that double fault on the important point, well, no, it's not if you hadn't served that double fault. The, 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 the answer to all that is your second serve's not good enough. And the result from that is you, you go out and you practice your second serve until it does become good enough. And was that analysis stuff you did by yourself? Because, I mean, didn't have large coaching entourages in those days. Yeah, I, uh, I had a, my private coach, Henry Lindo, who I was with up until when I was, you know, 16 and started to travel. He was uh, quite laid back and, and all that and would give good little bits of advice. We had um, an, another coach, Dave Thompson, who the New South Wales Tennis Association used to get us together Eight, eight of the best young kids on Saturday morning coaching for three hours and go through some really tough uh, training uh, in that three hours. And, uh, you know, on a hot day, uh, you, you couldn't go and get a drink until he said, OK, take a break, you've got 10 minutes, don't be back in 11 minutes. And so it was that, that type of training was uh, terrific. But did you sit down with anyone else after you lost a match and say, right, why did I lose this? Or were all the answers within yourself? No, I've tried to figure it out for myself. And that, uh, that sort of stayed, stayed with me. Let's take you forward. You won Wimbledon in 1967. You then turned professional. And your second Wimbledon title came in 1970. You won singles and doubles. But you played a five-set final against Ken Rosewall. Rosewall won the fourth set and had the crowd with him. He was a sentimental favourite. What did you do between the end of the fourth and beginning of the fifth set to turn that round? Well, you've got to go back a little bit in time because at 10 years of age, Ken Rosewall and Lou Hode were the, the wonder kids. Um, they were 19 and they were playing Davis Cup first time for Australia and uh, at Kuyong uh, against the Americans and I listened to every uh, point on the radio at my home in Sydney uh, of, of that whole three days or four days as it turned out so Ken was uh, you know a bit of an idol of, of mine and, and he'd been kind enough to when I was 17 to come out and practice with me on, at White City he was professional of course and I was amateur he did that a couple of times and so I had this great respect for Ken and uh, he was nothing but nice and and was uh, pretty tough to play against then. So, you know, you got that background. So here I am now playing against him in a Wimbledon final and because I'd won Wimbledon before and I'd been in the final the year before and Ken had been in a couple of finals but hadn't won one. He was the older guy and uh, he was the sentimental favourite even though I was always very popular at Wimbledon. So he, he won a tough first set and... And then I won the next two, I think it was 6-3, 6-2 or something. And, and, and I was up 3-1 in the fourth and I was 
rolling over the top of him and and the crowd and the crowd picked him up if i missed a shot they'd clap and if he hit a winner they'd uh, you know clap really loud and and this got got to me you know i i started to think well why are they against me i you know i want to win too and i lost i lost touch with the match basically i think i probably started in a weird way feeling sorry for myself that this was happening out there because you have to understand Wimbledon centre court, especially in a final, is a heat furnace down there, you know, and if you, you let outside uh, things affect you, it's very hard to get back into the zone you were in before. So Ken won five games in a row to win the set 6-3, and, and at that stage the crowd were, you know, a buzz. There was electricity coming there. Roswell's turned the match around, you know, and and I'm I've got... A hundred percent negative attitude, which was unlike me. So I changed ends, and no chairs then. Had to pour your own drink, Robinson's barley water. <laughs> and um, I said to myself, "How badly do you want to win this?" I said, "Yes, I do." And I said, "Well, you've got sixty seconds here to turn your negative attitude into a positive attitude." So okay, so I I set to work uh, in my mind. And when I went out on the court, there was a, a person at the other end of the net. There was a tennis ball. There was someone calling the score. And that was the only thing that existed out there. I was in a zone. I played probably, you know, the, the best fifth sets I've ever played. And I, when Ken did something, it was like I knew he was going to do it before he did it. And I, I won the fifth set 6-1. And two days uh, after it, you... you takes you a while to settle down after you've won a grand slam and when all the all the furor had uh, died down and I had a, a personal moment I started thinking wow I'm pretty proud I won my second Wimbledon and especially beating Ken and then I thought again I thought no I'm actually more proud of what I did in that 60 seconds I was able to turn in that cauldron down there on the court I was able to turn a hundred percent negative attitude into a 100% positive attitude in 60 seconds at the changeover. Was there a link between that early post-match analysis that you did and your ability to turn round that momentum that was so strongly for Ken Rosewall? Yeah, well, I'd, over the years, I'd, I'd you know, studied myself, what my weaknesses and strengths were, not just in, in game, but um, mentally what would cause me to get a negative attitude, what would cause me to get a positive attitude. And I give a fair bit of credit of that to my mother because I was a pretty fiery youngster growing up. And, you know, from six, seven, eight years of age, if things didn't go my way in the kitchen, I'd tend to run off into the the bedroom and slam the bedroom door and and she'd come in and um, just sit down uh, beside me and talk in a very low voice until I'd got out of the, the mood that I was in and uh, explained to me how it, it wasn't helpful to me to be like that. So over, a, I, I think, probably a period of time, uh, I started to understand that. And i give you an example. Um, uh, I was playing a, a under-14 state championship against a guy that was one year older than me and only played a one set in the final uh, they'd put us on a back court and not a not a main court. And I went out and I had a 
I had a bad attitude and there were only two people watching was my mother and Tony Paul's mother and they were on opposite sides of the net and and I was uh, behaving really badly and I was down 4-1 and uh, things weren't looking good and I was changing ends and my mother never said anything on the court but she she kind of hissed at me and she said uh, as I changed ends she said why don't you start playing tennis and stop feeling sorry for yourself. And I turned around and glared, <laughs> glared at her, but by the time I'd got back to the baseline, I said, my gosh, she's right. And uh, I got myself out of that and, and, and won the set 7-5 and won the championship. But had she not said that, so that was a great lesson. And, and you know, lo and behold, years later, I'm going through the same thing on the centre court at Wimbledon. Did you actually think of your mother? Did you picture her at all when you're going through those 60 seconds or in any other match? Uh, no, not really. I mean, but the lessons that I learned were ingrained in my head. So I, I didn't, I wasn't out there thinking, oh, yeah, mum's talking to me, you know. I mean, she she was there at the, uh, it's the first time she came to Wimbledon, 1970 final against Ken. So she saw me win the singles doubles and, um, yeah, so she she was probably proud of the way I turned myself around. You also used to go into certain matches having visualised the walk-on, the coin toss, the warm-up, the first few minutes. Where did that come from? I got uh, contacted by a guy in Sydney who said, oh, look, I've been watching you play your matches and I, I think I can help you. I was 18, I think. Anyway, I spent... Um, I probably spent about 20 hours with him going over to his place and getting into stuff. And we did a lot of exercises, mental exercises. And, yeah, they proved pretty fruitful. And one of them was to, you know, visualisation of the, the court. And so before I'd go out for a Wimbledon final, I'd find a private place. Sometimes at Wimbledon, a bit noisy in the dressing room, so I'd, I'd go into the toilet and lock the door and sit there and um, and visualise walking onto the court with my opponent and tossing the racket and, you know, the beginning of the match and where, where the, everyone was sitting and, and all that. So when I got out there, it didn't seem strange that I was there. It was like I'd been here before. And were you aware of matches that you might have been much more nervous in but you weren't so nervous because you'd done the visualisation. Well, yeah, I, um, I lost a, a first round at Wimbledon one year to Fred Stolly. I had set point in the first set, led 4-1 in the second and 5-3 in the third and lost in three straight sets, came off the court and I couldn't remember any, anything that had happened out there. So when I was thinking about it afterwards, I thought, well, I allowed the, the occasion of playing Fred because it was a it was an important match and the electricity of the centre court, I wasn't focusing. And, um, you know, I, I never let that happen again to the extent where, I, not that I would have beaten Fred that time because we always played close matches, but it was a, a, a lesson learnt about the electricity of centre court, how it can make you lose your focus. Um, I was playing Tom Ocker in in 1969 in the quarterfinal and uh, I led two sets to one and five love serving with new balls and um, most people left to go and get a, a cup of tea 
before the next match because this one was over and I lost complete focus and um, 10 minutes later it's 5 all and I had to snap out of it and refocus and I, I managed to break Tom serve and, and win the match but I mean I was almost out of it and that's that's what the centre court at Wimbledon can do to you. Because you did say once that when you played your first final against Wilhelm Bungert in 1967, you felt quite relaxed until you started the match, the umpire calls play, and you suddenly noticed your racket hand was shaking. A- absolutely. Did, I, I, did the visualisation not work then, yeah. or what? <laughs> well, it was my first Wimbledon final, and I'd played, you know, I'd won the doubles a couple of times, and everybody had said, all my mates had said, oh, this will be different, you'll be really nervous. So I go out, and I'm warming up, and I was, it's all right, it's just another match, and I've got a service action where, as a starter, I put my racket out in front, and and uh, the umpire said, play it. I put my racket out in front, and the racket was shaking like hell, and, and I thought, oh, it's ridiculous, I'm really nervous, and, and I lost my opening serve. Fortunately, he won the match easily after that, but, uh, yeah, that, I, I, I shook it off real quick, but it cost me that first game. And at the height of your career, you brought out a book, The Power Within, How to Create a High-Performance Mind. Was that just you wanting to share the various bits of self-analysis that you'd done and that helped you in tennis? Yes. Um, I, I, I was always a, a student of the psychology of the game, and I knew that I you know, had been through a lot of occasions like that, and I wanted to put it all down. I wasn't sure how to go about it, and I had a good mate who'd, um, Mike Duff, who was was into that sort of stuff in a theoretical um, version. So we decided to do a book together, and it was uh, a fascinating exercise because uh, he'd write a chapter about um, the theory of, of something of the mind and whatever it might be and so I'd read what he'd written and then I'd I'd think of an occasion in a in a match where that had happened to me and so then I'd I'd write about the practical experience of going through that whole thing and it was a fascinating experience to work our way through the book going chapter for chapter like that reading what he had written and then he'd read what I'd written yeah uh, I really enjoyed doing that book I mean, this is the era before the inner game of tennis, before the various sports psychologists came along, and uh, many players these days travel with a psychologist. The book itself that you wrote is still available. You can find a few copies on the internet. Do you think it's still relevant today, or has has time superseded what you discovered then? Oh, I think it's still very uh, relevant, but after I'd done the book, I... I mean, I'd, I'd written my own life story before that and done a book, and I did a quite a few book appearances around Australia, but I never wanted to go overseas and promote it. Uh, I was happy just to do the book. And so after Mike and I had finished this book, I, I really didn't feel like doing a book tour or anything like that. I was happy just to put everything down in writing and, um, you know, leave it at that. So it did pretty well in sales considering I I didn't go out and over promote it or anything like that. Was it a little bit new agey almost a bit weird to do something like that at that stage? Um, No I don't think so and the title The Power Within said what I wanted to get across and because we talked about Mike talked about the theory and I talked about things that had actually happened in battle 
we were getting the whole thing together. So I, I thought the whole book made a lot of common sense. Tennis Worthy is not just a podcast. It's also a video series dedicated to the triumphs and challenges Hall of Famers and legends have overcome. From Arthur Ashe to Billie Jean King's resiliency and Martina Navratilova's sacrifice of defecting from her homeland for a better future. Tennis Worthy tells the best stories of the game from the best players in the game through the defining values of tennis. To watch, visit tennisfame.com slash tennisworthy. The International Tennis Hall of Fame's collection is vast, spanning over 25,000 artifacts and millions of images. However, only a fraction of it is on display in the museum in Newport, Rhode Island. But the team at the Hall of Fame has been diligently digitizing its vast collection, so no matter where in the world you are, you can explore some of tennis's greatest history. The International Tennis Hall of Fame has produced exhibits on fashion, rackets, tennis balls, cans, and more. And none of it requires you to leave the comfort of your home. You can explore the award-winning digital exhibits at tennisfame.com slash digital exhibits. Let's send you back now to Chris Bowers for more of his conversation with Hall of Famer John Newcomb. You, in many ways, timed it perfectly because you won Wimbledon in 67, you won the US title in 67, and then you turned professional. And then in 68, the two professional and amateur sides of tennis rejoined. But in that short period where you were on the professional circuit, I gather you learned a fair bit from rubbing shoulders with Pancho Gonzalez, who wasn't the easiest of characters. <laughs> yeah, very true. Uh, we played a, uh, a professional tournament um, in the middle of uh, 1968 at uh, the Longwood Cricket Club in Boston. There were 16 players and I had to play Pancho in the, in the first round. I hadn't met him before. And everybody had told me the fiery stories about him and how he'd, against uh, new blokes, he'd try to pull tricks and all that. And, and that was all right because I'd grown up with older people trying to do that to me all the time on the court. I played a good match and beat him 6-4, 6-4. And it's quite a long walk back to the dressing room at the Longwood Cricket Club from the centre court. And I got back there and, and he'd gone into the locker room already and I thought... Oh, I'm not getting near his locker room because he was known to really get... And I heard, you know, rackets smashing into the locker and all that, and I thought, I'm going to try to avoid him for a while. He was a big bloke, uh, Pancho, and he had a, a scar down, the big scar down his cheek that uh, would light up when he got angry. Anyway, um, later on, he we were chatting a bit, and he was very friendly towards me. And so I, I noticed that... Every time Laver or Rosewell were playing a match, he was sitting up there watching them, them play. He was an avid watcher. So I started sitting next to him. Whenever he was watching a match, I went and sat next to him. And I got a wealth of information out of him because he, he had a great ego and he was only too keen to share as much as he could. And I absorbed everything he said because you know, he was a master of uh, of the game and um, and we became lifelong friends. Such as what? What sort of information were you picking up from him? Oh, just uh, what the tactics were on the court and why this was happening and that's happening and how they were playing uh, and how they might change their game at a certain time. Yeah, I, I, I learned a lot by listening. 
In those days, the frequency of flights and the cheapness of flights wasn't what it subsequently became. As an Australian, how important was it for you to actually have mates who would be your sort of travelling family for five, six months of the year? Yeah, that's why uh, Australians were always close together because you'd leave Australia and we, we'd be away for eight months and so you, the other players became your, your family uh, on the circuit. We, we didn't have coaches or entourages travelling with us then and whenever you were feeling down and out or a bit homesick, you know, there would always be a mate around to go and have a, a big night with so you could uh, talk about all your problems and the one rule we had was if we went out and had a big night, we had to train twice as hard the next day. And were you all as supportive to each other or did it actually create difficulties when you then had to play each other in a big match after being each other's support network for the last few months? Yeah, we all noticed that uh, players from other countries, they would be appear like they were best mates but quite often they were cheering against their best mate when he was playing his match. When, and we found that very strange because we were always cheering for um, our mate. Uh, and in, in the early years when we were travelling, uh, if Tony Roach and I, you know, we both lost early in a, in a match, we'd practice together the next day and we'd play a three out of five set match in practice, be out there for three hours trying to kill one another. And uh, a lot of the... Uh, other players on the circus would, uh, circuit would, um, you know, look at us and just shake our heads. But, I mean, we were almost trying harder than if it was a match. And then, you know, we go and have a beer together. It's a good story, but to what extent is being happy on the tour, what can be a fairly lonely existence, vital to actually getting the results you need to stay at the top? Exactly. And um, if I think back, uh, travelling around, if you, you didn't have a mate, you know, a good mate or a few good mates, you know, that were travelling around with you to have dinner with and have a few laughs with, yes, it could have been very bad. But I think we all, you know, really enjoyed our time because we loved playing tennis, we loved the competition and, you know, we made sure we had fun while we were doing it all. You mentioned Tony Roach then. We've talked a lot about your singles, but you and Roachy formed a, a formidable doubles team. What made you so good? Uh, from my point of view, I felt like going out in the court with Tony, I only had to worry about half of the court. And I had a 100% confidence in Tony being able to handle his half of the court. We're different personalities. I came from Sydney, went to a private school. Tony came from Tarkata, 300 miles south of Sydney. His dad was a butcher down there. Tony's more sort of withdrawn. Withdrawn is probably not the right word. Introverted? Yeah, a little bit introverted as a you know a country bloke and I was more outgoing and um, there were times on the court when we were playing and we'd be in trouble and I'd see that Tony was in a in a, in a bad mood and I'd say, what's the problem? And, and he'd say, oh, something, you know, whether it was something you know, one of the other players were doing or that and so I'd have to, you know, call them out and, and then we'd get on with the job. You know, we, we just meshed well together. We liked each other. You know, if I was in a war, he'd be one guy that I wouldn't mind being in a foxhole with. So what was it like playing with other partners? Um, Tom Ocker you won the uh, French with. Uh, 
Rod Levy won the Davis Cup with as a professional. Yeah, I um, Tony, you know, had bad arm problems for a couple of years, and in '73 he wasn't playing, and I actually I won the Australian doubles with uh, Mel Anderson. I won the French with Tom Ocker, and we didn't play Wimbledon. And uh, I won the U.S. Open doubles with Owen Davidson. So yeah, I, I mean, I I enjoyed playing doubles. I I think one of my strengths in doubles was. I hardly ever lost my serve, which was, you know, it's pretty important. And, um, yeah, I got on easily with, with other players and always had a, a good time out there. Just focus on 73 for a minute, because this is an interesting year. You started the year by winning the Australian Open. You won the US Open. You finished the year by winning the Davis Cup. Rankings have just come in and you topped the rankings. And yet most of that year you played toying with the idea of retirement. In fact, I think you were quite close to retiring. To what extent did the thought that this might be it act as a sort of, did it take the pressure off? Did it act as an extra incentive or what? Well, we we had two kids at that stage and um, it was becoming increasingly hard to travel with a family and um, Angie was pregnant again with a, a third baby in uh, July. I wasn't, I wasn't enjoying the circuit when I was travelling. You know, being away from the family, probably a fair bit of guilt. You know, in that, it was too hard to travel with, with everyone. And so after I won the Australian, I, I thought, well, I'm, I'm not going to play that much this year. Retirement hadn't come right into my head at that stage, but I wasn't going to play as much. Meanwhile, we'd been allowed back into the Davis Cup. Players who were world championship tennis players, when tennis went open in 1968, although we could play in all the tournaments, the International Tennis Federation, if you're a contract professional, you're not allowed to play Davis Cup. So for five years, we hadn't been allowed to play Davis Cup. And Neil Fraser, the Davis Cup captain, had come to me and asked me, uh, would I play Davis Cup in 73? Now we're allowed back in. I said, yeah, count me in for the whole year. So I committed to Davis Cup and not many other tournaments. Well, it was over at Wimbledon and we boycotted Wimbledon and I thought, I've had enough. And I came back to my tennis ranch in Texas and said to Angie, I think I'm going to retire. She's about to give birth at this stage. Yes. And um, she said, uh, I think you should um, take a few days to think about it. So I thought about it for three or four days. And then I came back and I said, well, I'll give it one more year. But if I do, family's going to have to be sacrificed because I'm not going to go back and play unless I, I'd give it 100% because that's what it's going to take. Otherwise, I'm wasting my time out there. So the US Open was coming up in a month. I started training at my tennis ranch, doing a lot of running and exercising. And and I'd said to Angie, I'm going to win the US Open. And then nine months later, I'm going to win WCT, which I hadn't won before. So that's my two goals. I, I never set out to say I'm going to be number one or anything. That wasn't that important. It was personal little goals. So I got to the US Open, struggled in the first two rounds, struggled 
until I um, won my round of 16. And halfway through the round of 16, it was against Andrew Patterson. I just caught fire. And I came off the court and I said to Angie, that's it, I'm going to win the tournament. I beat Jimmy in the, in the quarters and uh, Muscles in the semis and Kodesh in the final. And nine months later, I won WCT. And as it turned out, I was number one. But they were the two goals I set myself. I think when I went into the US Open, my ranking had dropped to 10 because I, although I won the Australian earlier in the year, I hadn't been playing. But to what extent did the decision to play less and the fact that you could see the end coming and the fact that the family was important to you, how did that help your results? Or didn't it? How did it help my results? Well, how did it help your attitude to competing? Well, once I'd made the decision and Angie said, well, OK, go for it, that's OK, the, the guilt's gone. You've had an open discussion about it. She knew what I, I wanted to achieve. She was in agreement, and so I went out and I went out and did it. And that takes a load off your mind. You know, we had th- three kids, a new baby, and um, you know, I'm a family man, and and that takes a, a lot of stress being out there away from your family. It's uh, it's quite stressful. And so, two years after the, I'll give it one more year. You're winning the Australian Open again. In 75? Well, that was, yeah, the, we played January 1, 75. Oh, okay. It was really, the tournament started at the end of 74. So in the middle of the year, I was suddenly number one. Jimmy came along and he won um, Wimbledon in the US, but we never played all year. And the only time we'd played was at the US Open the year before, and, and I beat him in uh, three straight sets. So... I told the Open, Australian Open organisers, I said, that's it, I'm not playing. I'm sick of being away from home at Christmas time. Count me out. Ten days before the tournament, they called me and said, Connors is definitely coming. I said, if you can guarantee me that, I'll play the tournament. So I, had, I hadn't played for a month. I had ten days to prepare for that tournament. and I didn't play much tennis, but I did a lot of physical work and I had a a three-mile run around uh, our suburb uh, from my house. And, uh, is this over... Sydney or Texas? And I was in Sydney. Okay. And um, over a half of that, there was a very serious hill. Uh, I called it Connors Hill. I'd get halfway up the hill in the mi- middle of summer and really hot day and thinking, I'll just stop for a while. I said, no, I'm five all on the fifth against Jimmy I have to keep going and I'd, I'd get to the top of that hill and I'd there was a lot of traffic around everywhere and they must have thought I was mad because at the top of the hill I'd I'd stop for a while and do a real rocky movement <laughs> but you won the Australian Open beating Jimmy in the finals it's the one and two in the world and yet it was the semi-final where you really had to dig deep well the quarterfinal as well that, that had a lot of rain the final was going to be played on a Wednesday, which happened to be New Year's Day. And so the tournament was uh, delayed and I had to play Jeff Masters on the Monday. My form was pretty good, but I wasn't playing you know, at, at my best at that stage. And Jeff was you know, a good player. I just beat him 10-8 in the fifth. And Tony and I played a doubles match after that. That was Monday. Tuesday, I had to play Tony. And um, I was down uh, 5-2 in the fifth and came back and, and won 11-9 in the fifth, saved four match points. And from 5-2 in the fifth, 
I, I had no memory of anything that happened on the court. I was pretty exhausted. I just knew that I wanted to get to the final to play Jimmy. And then I had to default in the doubles because I had to play Jimmy the next day. Monday and Tuesday night, our uh, trainer, Stan Nichols, I went to to him, Davis Cup trainer, and he spent two hours just working on my legs each night. I woke up Wednesday morning and wondered how I was going to feel. I felt all right, but I went and, uh, went for a, 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 a jog, to, jogged a mile just to check how the body was and then went out and... Um, beat Jimmy in a, in a very tight match, tie-break in the fourth set. If you have no memory of what happened from 2-5 down in the fifth against Roach, how did you win it? It was one of my, my most fascinating experiences to, to go through. And you read about people that are, you know, in, in some terrible experience and, and they're, they're out of it and somehow they... They find a reserve to climb a mountain when they think they're dead or whatever it is. And, and that was an inner body experience that I, that I went through. Uh, I'd gone into areas of my brain and my, and my mind that I'd never been into before because normally going into a, a slam tournament, I'd, I would have done a lot more training beforehand. So it was... Uh, it was a fascinating experience to go through because I'd never been there before. I'd never been to that part of my uh, my body and my brain uh, before. Was it wonderful or was it scary? When the match finished and I went and sat down and one of the announcers, Australian guy that I knew well, he came up to me to see if I'd do an interview on the court and he'd done a lot of boxing matches. And he said something, and I was sitting there with a towel over my head, and I, I can remember I just wanted to cry. Because I'd, I'd been somewhere, some place I'd never been to before. And um, he said he looked at me, and he just walked away. Because he said he'd, he'd seen fighters like that at the end of a fight. And when you look back on the memory, do you know where you went? No. When I did the book with Mike Duff on Your Inner Self, um, and he'd spoken to some a Japanese uh, sort of master in, in psychology and all that, and, and he'd kind of explained it the place you go to in your body when you... I think Kipling has a couple of sentences about when you... you know, about that in his poem, If, when the body's got nothing left, you can find something more. Yes, I could... I'm trying to remember the lines, but yes. Yeah. No, yeah. I, <laughs> when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hang on. Yes. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. So, it, you know... It was, uh, yeah, it was fascinating to go through that. In 1994, you were asked to be the Davis Cup captain for Australia. You were only the third captain in 44 years because Hopman had done 20 and Neil Fraser had done 24. And you took over with Tony Roach as your coach and you held the job for seven years. 
What do you look back most proudly on that seven-year period? Well, first of all, Tony and I had to fight to get the job because they'd never, uh, Tennis Australia had never had a captain coach. They always had a captain, Harry Hopman and then Neil Fraser. And Tony and I figured it now required two people to do the job. So they went to Tony and said, you know, will you do the job? And he said, no, not unless John's doing it. And they came to me and I said the same thing. So we took it on. We figured that we would be successful if when we retired, if the culture of Davis Cup was instilled in the players that were under our charge, that was the main thing. And that was to be in honour of everyone going back to Norman Brooks, you know, all the great Australian players. We had to keep that culture going. So we took over a new team, a young team, you know, Pat Rafter, and then along came Philippousis and Leighton Hewitt and, and the Woodies who hadn't played a, a, any Davis Cup singles at that stage. They played a, a couple of doubles and Jason Stoltenberg who'd played some uh, Davis Cup. And we, we got them all together and we said, guys, right now uh, you all think it's good if you get to a quarterfinal of a Grand Slam. We're going to come out winning Grand Slam tennis and we're going to become the best team in the world. That's our goal. Uh, it took us five years to get that inbred into, into their heads that we would be the best in the world. And we had some bad losses where the, the boys were knocked down on the ground and every time we had a, a bad loss uh, and they were despondent, we'd say, guys, this is the test of your character. You know, you've been knocked down on the ground. When you get up, you've got to stand taller than we were when you were knocked down. And that's, that's the test of your character. And if you if you do that, we'll be with you every inch of the way. So at the end of five years, we'd, we'd had a bad loss to Zimbabwe. The boys picked themselves up and um, we won our next 11 matches. Didn't, didn't lose until we'd uh, become the best team in the world. And the boys started winning Grand Slam, you know, singles and... Um, the Woodies were a perfect example. The first doubles match they played with us, they lost, and they never lost another one because Pat Rafter, you know, lost himself in that time period and rediscovered himself and, and went on to achieve his uh, full potential and his dreams. And Leighton Hewitt became number one in the world and Mark Philippousis achieved amazing things as well as winning, you know, two Davis Cup titles. So at the end of seven years, though, I said to Tony, I, I've had enough. I can't, it's taking too much out of me, my family and everything like that. Because I, I thought to do the job well, I had to get to know each of the boys personally and I had to get to know their families. That's the only way we could build trust. Because when you're sitting out in the court there, your player has to trust you and you have to trust the player. I was going to say, it's all very well to say, oh, we'll, we have to instill the Davis Cup culture. We have to make them realise that they're carrying on a great Australian tradition. But what exactly did you do? What did you give, you know, Rafter, Philippousis, Wayne Arthurs, Leighton Hewitt, the Woodies and, and, and the other bench players? You can talk all you want off the court, but it's in the heat of battle where, you know, you discover each other and... Uh, I helped the boys through some pretty tough times out there. Sometimes I couldn't help them and, you know, we lost the match. But, uh, for example, Pat, in uh, 97, 
he'd come over a couple of years from being a, a great protege who was had reached 21 in the world and at the, the the start of 97 he was 63 in the world he'd lost his way completely he lost first round at the Australian Open and came off the court and said I can't match it with the boys in the top 20 anymore but I said you're going to play against France in two weeks time he played Cedric Pialin in the opening match Lost the first set, uh, led 5-1 in the second, choked, choked again, led 4-1 in the breaker, choked, came around and um, sat down and said, oh, sorry, Nuke, that's the biggest choke the world's ever seen. And uh, I lost it. And I started swearing at him and yelling at him and telling him how we were going to begin a war of attrition. But to win this war, he had to dig deep down inside his guts and rediscover the ball of fire that defined who Pat Rafter really was and um, told him that uh, it's going to take us two hours. At the end of two hours, I said, we're going to bury that French guy two foot under this court and uh, we're going to begin a war of attrition. So sitting down in a complete sulk and now I'm right in his face using terrible language and screaming at him. He's now sitting up and he went out on the court and I followed him out screaming about the uh, terrible things that we're going to do to Cedric Pialin, who was a great guy. (laughs) Anyway, he had a game at 3-2 in that third set. He was playing like Pat Rafter now and he was at the other end of the court serving and he had a game that went for 11 juices. He saved seven break points on balls that you couldn't reach, he reached. And at the end, he was at the net when he hit a volley winner and he was pumping his fists and screaming. And I was out of my chair screaming at him. And, and I went and sat back down. I said, that's it, he's going to win the match. I saw it in his eyes. He's rediscovered that that warrior mentality that really defined who Pat Rafter was. And uh, Pat went on and won 6-4 in the fifth. And... Um, I was a semi-finalist at the French Open and won the US Open that same Went year. Semi-finalist the French, won the US Open, won the US Open the following year, runner-up at Wimbledon in the final twice, could, could have won both matches. It was funny, postmark of the story, he walked off the court before me and I was carrying all his stuff and we got in the dressing room and the, the Woodies were there and they were hugging him and saying, oh, Pat, that was great. And he said, oh, thanks, guys. And I, I just walked in. And he didn't see me walk in. He said, geez, he said, bloody nuke lost it out there. He was kept yelling at me about a war of attrition. He said, what's a war of attrition? <laughs> I came up and grabbed him and I said, mate, you don't have to go to the dictionary. You just lived it. <laughs> Brilliant. So that, that's how you build relationships of trust. And do you feel that a big part of Rafter's two US Open titles, getting to world number one, Leighton Hewitt's two Grand Slam titles, Philippoussis' two Grand Slam finals, some of the Woody's achievements, including Olympic gold and Olympic silver, were at least in part because of what they got out of the Davis Cup. Yeah, well, you know, what Tony and I did was, I look at it like this, there's a tennis mountain and the, the gold is at the top of the mountain. And we were helping them find the path 
up the mountain, which can be very, very difficult. And especially when you get near the top of the mountain, there's not room for many people there. Uh, there's only a few left, and they'll already, they're will already they already to kill you to get there themselves. So we helped show them the path. They were the ones that you know walked the path, but we were the guides who helped them find that road to the top. In 1986, you were inducted into the International Tennis Hall of Fame. What do you remember about that, and what did it mean to you? Well, great honour, obviously. Um, I'm a real student of history and ancient history, so I knew quite a lot about all the great players because I'd, I'd read about them and, and treasured the fact that uh, I, w I would be honoured by being put in the Hall of Fame, Tennis Hall of Fame, alongside these other great champions and not only that but uh, you and I did it at the same time as as my great mate Tony Roach. You say you're a student of ancient history is there any great story from ancient history that you like telling people in in the connection with achievements in tennis? No but I, I, I look at tennis matches as being battles and um, we had a, a thing we'd say I'd draw a line uh, in the dressing room I'd say there's the line and we're not going back and other expressions that you know were to do with going to battle and and winning and and not giving up and yeah a lot of that stuff came from my my love of history and and battles that were won and lost in the past so looking back over a distinguished playing career distinguished davis cup captaincy career and also about 40 years of tennis commentating when people ask you for advice what advice do you give kids what advice do you give parents my advice to my own kids was uh you know you have to find out what you want to do and what you, what you want to do in life but the one thing i demand of you is that you be a nice person so you don't believe in the nice guys always come last adage no not at all <laughs> i I can disprove that in a number of occasions, including Rod Laver and, and Ken Rosewall and uh, you know, a lot of the great Australian players. They were, they were nice guys, but they were, they were warriors out on the court. You know, there were a lot of sayings like that. There's no prize for seconds and all of that, but uh, it's really, you know, it's, it's when you come off, off the battle, calling a tennis match, a five-set match, a battle, it's... Um, can you come off the court and look in the mirror and be proud of yourself, whether you've won or lost? Of course, you're more proud if you've won, but did you do your best? Did you do your absolute best? And there's no shame in saying, well, today the other guy was too good. I love it when I see players out there and they shake hands and they look one another in the eye. And too often today, it's the, the loser just shakes hands and, won't look at the other person and uh, gives a, a fish handshake. Well, in my day, if someone gave you a fish handshake, you wouldn't let their hand go. <laughs> yeah. And if you have a parent of a promising child, is there any advice you'd give to the parent? That's a very tricky question. <laughs> we had, um, it, it becomes uh, trickier with the different cultures. Some cultures, uh, the the bond between a father and son is uh, very hard to get between. So you have to, you know, try to get to know the parent as well as you possibly can because that's 
that's a way to get trust of the player. You've just got to try to understand that. And, and sometimes uh, I think people have a, a, a problem coming to grips with that, especially as, as tennis became more international and English-speaking associations found that they were dealing with a lot of parents that came from Eastern European countries or countries that will take Greece, for example, where there's a, a, a very strong bond between father and son. And you've got to learn how to deal with that. And it's, it's not easy. I, I had it with Mark Philippoussis and, and Mark's dad, Nick. And I, we had an on-off love relationship. But, you know, in, in the end, um, I had the respect of Mark, uh, of course, but also his dad. But, you know, the, it wasn't easy because sometimes I didn't understand where they were coming from and, and they probably didn't understand where I was coming from. So you had to work through that. John Newcomb, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts about success in tennis. My pleasure. It's been fun. Immense thanks to John Newcomb for joining us on today's episode and for the tremendous insight into the mental side of this sport. This wraps up our very first season of the Tennis Worthy podcast, and what an amazing season it's been. We'll be taking a hiatus for a little while, but we'll be back soon with season number two for more inspirational conversations with Hall of Famers, tennis legends, and coaches. In the meantime, if you haven't already, be sure to give our other conversations a listen, and don't forget to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. The Tennis Worthy Podcast was created by the International Tennis Hall of Fame in association with the Tennis Radio Network. Thanks for listening.